Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, my name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor here at First, and we're grateful that you are here and you are joining us as we enter into Luke chapter 10. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 10. Before we read Luke chapter 10 together, it's helpful to know what comes before it, which is Luke chapter 9. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, and, and this is a, just kind of a helpful thing when it comes to studying scripture. When you're reading a passage, studying a passage, it's really helpful to know what has come before and what comes after. In other words, how does it fit within the flow of thought that the writer is trying to communicate within Scripture? And so in Luke chapter 9, at the very end of the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, you find Jesus having a conversation with three people. And these are would-be disciples. These are potential disciples. And, and he essentially has a conversation three different ways. And he's calling these people to come follow him meaning to leave everything that they've been given and to pursue, to seek first God's kingdom, God's righteousness, and to do what the rabbi Jesus, their, their, their would-be master would say. And each of these three people have one excuse or another. The, the, the first one is um, he, he makes this commitment to go, and Jesus reminds him, hey, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, if you're going to sign up for this, it's going to be different than what you think it is. Uh, because the accoutrements that come with what you think might be the kingdom are maybe not what you anticipate. He says to another in verse 59, he says, follow me. And that one responds to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Now, we don't know whether or not his father is even passed away. It may be that he is waiting for his father to die, and then he receives his inheritance, and he goes through that. But, but even if his father has recently died, the burial period took several months at this time. And so he's saying, essentially, hang on, let me hit pause, not just for like two days or three days. Let me hit pause for a series of months before I will follow. In other words, there's something that takes priority. The third disciple, um, potential disciple, um, <clears throat> Jesus says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those who are at my house. And, and, and frankly, each one of these people have a sense of misplaced priorities because Jesus' call to follow is right then and there. He's saying, are, are you willing to give everything right now for the sake of following in my teaching, my kingdom, taking my, um, my perspective in my, um, my work upon your life? And that is the choice of a, of, of a disciple, of a, of a rabbi. You, you could say it this way, following Jesus is a choice we make, but followers of Jesus don't get to choose how they follow, all right? The purpose of a rabbi is to teach them how to follow. Their, their job is to say, yes, I will follow. So, so following Jesus is a choice we make. We don't get to choose how we follow, but we do choose whether we follow. Whether we will say, yes, Jesus, I will listen to your words. Yes, Jesus, I will obey your voice. Yes, Jesus, I will go where you sent me. And so that plays into our passage for today. And so I know you've just been standing for a few minutes, but if you're here, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture this morning. Luke chapter 10 says this. 
After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off as a witness against you, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the challenge that they bring. And even God now, as the passage has instructed, as Jesus sends out these disciples, he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers to work and to engage in this kingdom work. And God, we pray for that this morning. We pray for workers for the harvest. And Lord, we pray that it would begin with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, Jesus is sending people out. He's sending them to heal and to proclaim the, um, the kingdom of God. In other words, God's rule, God's reign within the lives of people. Remember, the kingdom is the active rule of God in a person who repents of their sin and they trust Jesus. They trust Jesus with their sin. They trust Jesus with their life. They recognize that there is no other way to the Father except through him. And so Jesus is speaking to a whole host of people. Matthew's gospel reminds us that he's teaching to people who were worn down, they were beaten down, broken. And um, he, he's speaking to them, and his words become life. He says to them, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and let me give you rest. Take my yoke, in other words, take my teaching upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, because here, here you find rest for your souls. The Jewish people of Jesus' day were very accustomed to having all these burdens placed upon them by the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is essentially coming and saying, it's not about religious burden, it's about giving your entire life for the sake of the call of God upon it. And let me teach you, because when you follow my teaching, it's not burdensome, it's a delight. It's a delight 
to love and to serve Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning as we look at our passage is I want to look at several principles of ministry um, is, is, is how we're going to structure this. There's a couple of cultural things going on here like dust on the feet. You know, the only time I wipe my feet is at the beach when I'm getting the sand off before I come back into the car. So it's like, what does that mean and why does that matter? What I want to do is I want to distill this into some principles for us today as to how we are to live as followers, disciples of Jesus. And so here we go. The first one is this. Um, Jesus, in verse 1, he appoints 70 others. Now, some texts say 72. There's a manuscript difference. There's good manuscripts that say 70. There's good manuscripts that say 72. I'm more inclined to think it's 70. And, and that number is likely very literal, but it also has some symbolic nature to it. 70, for example, is symbolic of the number of elders who, who were helping Moses back in the Torah. Um, uh, 70 is symbolic, or it's, it's the actual number of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling councils of that time. And it's also held to be the number of nations in the world at this time, according to William Barclay's commentary. But Jesus is sending them out, and he's sending them to all the towns in the regions. Here's a photo. In the background, you see biblical Nazareth. And in the foreground, you see another biblical town uh, whose name I can't pronounce. So um, we won't say that one. Uh, but, but here you have the, the region of the Galilee where Jesus is sending his people out. And, and the text says that he's sending them out in pairs. So they're not going solo, they're going with people. And we, we find this model frequently in scripture. Uh, for example, Paul, when he goes, he usually has a Barnabas with him, or he has a Timothy with him. He, he, he often takes people with him, because discipleship is always better when you're not the only one there. Um, uh, it, it helps bring encouragement. It helps bring a different perspective. Uh, so Jesus sends them out in pairs, and he sends them to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he's sending them essentially with the message of the kingdom. He's sending them to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is here because that is the cornerstone of Jesus' message. That, that, that's why he came. Now he's doing a whole bunch of other things like healings and miracles, but these serve as signs of the reality of the presence of the kingdom in their midst. And so he sends them out and he tells them uh, to, to go. And as he tells them to go, he, he is giving them authority to act on his behalf. Okay? Now, Jesus, he, he, he could have said, I'm going to lone ranger this one, and I'm just going to go everywhere, and I'm just going to own this all on my shoulders. But Jesus, being the rabbi, being the teacher, he says, hmm, let me have other people go and share this message as well. And it's not the first time he's done this. In the beginning of Luke 9, for example, he takes the 12 disciples, those who are closest to him, and he sends them out on a mission. What he's doing is this. He's preparing people to be his witnesses when he is not there. He's, he's getting them ready while he is still on earth so that when he says in Matthew 28, which records, uh, therefore go into all the nations, or in your going is really, it's, it's a participle. In your going, as you go, Jesus says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach everything that I have commanded you. And Jesus gives them this promise as he gives them the authority, he says, and by the way, I'm going to be with you even until the end of the age. So, so Jesus is setting apart these 70 disciples, and he's saying, I want you to go. You're going to be my witnesses. You are going to bear the authority that I have given you. And that's the first principle here. 
kingdom work is all about authority, but it's not our authority as followers of Jesus, it's God's. It's God's authority to go and to proclaim. The idea behind uh, one who is sent with this kind of delegated authority is one who has the full authority of the sender as he accurately represents the sender's message. So Jesus is training them to understand the message so that as they go, they are faithfully proclaiming exactly what he wants them to. Now, I love this because it's not new in Scripture. Jesus uses people to send his message all throughout. You know, for example, he, he, he makes Adam and Eve, all right? And he, he places them to steward and to care for the garden. But even after the fall, even after sin enters the world, he, he uses people like Noah to preach to the nations. He uses people like Abraham. Actually, through Abraham, he says in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Blessing will come through your hand to everyone. He uses a person to do that. He covenants. He makes relationship with someone so that that person can, can extend the blessing of God to people. He uses Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He uses the nation of Israel to intend, intentionally be a blessing to the world. When, um, we'll look at this when we study Passover in a few weeks together. Um, but in Exodus chapter 12, um, Jesus, or not Jesus, in Exodus chapter 12, when God sends Moses back to Egypt to take God's people out of Egypt. One of the words that's used is, is um, that God creates a new community of people. In other words, uh, it's the word Ada in Hebrew, and it's this word for community or congregation. And he's taking all these ragtag groups of people, and he's forming them together for a single purpose. And that purpose is to serve Yahweh. He tells Moses, hey, I want you to go and, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, um, let my people go that they might serve or worship me. And in the context of all that's going on there, he's giving Moses authority. Moses isn't the only one. You've got David, you've got the prophets, all these people whom God has used to bring um, uh, teaching to bring a word to people who need to hear. Jesus is partnering with and equipping people in Luke chapter 10, much like God has done throughout history, to proclaim the message of the kingdom. And so he says, I'm, you know, I, I want you to go. He sends them in pairs. And then he says, as you go, he tells them in verse 2, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to, to send out workers into his harvest. I don't know if you've ever harvested anything before, uh, maybe in your garden or something like that, but harvest was hard work. You didn't have combines that could go down a row of wheat and, you know, however they mechanically do that, throw it into the back of it, and then you'd take it and you'd dump it into a, a bigger tractor on the side of the, on the, side of the field. You, you had hard work. You'd gather around and you'd, you, you'd grab your sickle or, or your knife and you'd cut the grain when it's done. You'd stack it up, you'd let it dry. At some point in time, you take it to the threshing floor where you'd beat it against something or you'd roll something over it because you have to get all those wheat grains or barley grains off the sheaf that can then be ground at some point to then make flour, to then make bread. And so what begins as a seed in the dirt comes to a full plant, takes work to harvest, and then work after that. It's laborious work. And Jesus gives a command here. This is an imperative command. When he says, therefore pray, 
He says, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in his harvest. Harvest. Now, the idea of a worker is someone who is engaged with work because you can't harvest grain and not be fully engaged. You don't just kind of like lazily hit a, hit a thing of straw and hope that it comes down where you want it to go. It takes intention. It takes focus. It takes energy. And Jesus is saying, I want you to pray that God would send workers to engage in the work of the harvest. And the harvest is is people hearing the message of God and receiving it with joy, all right? And, and one of the things I love about this is that he, he says, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So, so it's God's authority, but it's also God's harvest. It's God's harvest, which means the workers have a responsibility to share the message, to faithfully do what Jesus has said, but it's not their harvest. Sometimes we get, as followers of Jesus, very concerned about, oh no, what's the harvest going to be? Do, do something with me just for a moment. Take a deep breath in. Now exhale. It's God's harvest. It's in God's hands. We are called to pray. Pray that God would send laborers to engage with that harvest. Um, one of the incredible things about prayer is this. I think it was John Calvin who said, prayer is an attitude of dependence. Prayer is an attitude or an action of dependence. When we pray, we're essentially saying, God, we're trusting this to you. We, we could try to take this on ourselves, but we're not going to, God. We're going to trust this to you. Now, I was convicted this week. When's the last time you prayed, God, would you send laborers out to work in the harvest? That's a command. One of our prayers constantly should be, Lord, send laborers to work in the harvest. But as we pray, you know, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, pray in the disciples' prayer. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When, when, we, when we pray, God, your kingdom, your will be done, we're essentially saying, God, I'm here to do whatever your will is. As the psalmist says, I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your teaching or your law is within my heart. Praying this prayer is asking, God, would you send other laborers? But it's also saying, God, I am all in with you here. I want to be a worker and a laborer for the harvest. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This, this great picture of dependence and trust. Then he says this. He says, now go. I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. All right, lambs among wolves. All right, so what, what is a lamb amongst the wolf, and why is he talking about this? Well, when you think about lambs, in, in a shepherding context, which Jesus knew well, lambs are animals that require protection. They require care. Um, sheep aren't dumb. They just need a good shepherd. <laughs> 
um, they, they, they sometimes go off on their own. My, my dad grew up in upstate New York, and he had a couple sheep as a kid. And one of these sheep, I can't remember which one it was, they would go out and they would lay on the blacktop of the main road because it was like nice and warm. But you know what happens when you lay out on the blacktop of the main road is that a car can come by and hit you. It's maybe not the smartest place to lay down. But... Jesus is saying, hey, I'm sending you like lambs. I'm going to send you amongst the people who are going to be like wolves, people who are going to come at you. Now, we might think of that and say, wow, there, there is, um, there's a significant disadvantage for a lamb when they're facing a wolf, when they're facing this predator. Um, but, but I think Jesus means a couple of different things by this. The, the first one is this. Um, lambs are innocent and peaceable much of the time. Um, and Jesus desires that for them to be innocent and peaceable, even when their opposition is not. Um, so, so there's a certain way of living that's going to be gentle, and that's going to be receptive to the word of the shepherd, that's not going to go in and try to battle on their own, but they're, they're rather going to hear the voice, and they're just going to listen and to obey. They're going to have a... a a strength, but the strength is not from their muscles, and it's not from their instinct. Their strength comes from having a good shepherd. That's the thing about sheep, is that they're dependent creatures. And when sheep are dependent upon a good shepherd, they are well cared for, and they are intentioned to do exactly what they are called to do. Um, there's a whole history of, of shepherds in the Bible, and one of the most notable shepherds is a man named Moses. Uh, in Exodus is kind of one of his big books where he pops on the scene. Um, Moses is a man who grows up in the courts of Pharaoh, all right? We'll, pass, we'll kind of skip past all his birth and stuff like that, but when he's about 40 years old, he ends up killing an Egyptian, and he goes off into a different land. There, um, the Lord meets him. He, he's a shepherd. He served as a shepherd for 40 years out in the wilderness. And the Lord meets him in a burning bush, and he says, hey, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you um, to do something about the cry of my people, Israel, of which Moses is an Israelite. And so God sends him back. He hears the voice of God in this bush that's burning but doesn't burn up. And, and as they're having this conversation, Moses begins to think of all the ways in which he is incapable of doing what God wants him to do. I mean, think about it. God's essentially asked him, hey, I want you to go to the largest superpower in the world at the time, and I want you to tell the chief person of this world's largest superpower, hey, the Lord, Yahweh, the, the God who made everything, he says, let my people go so that they can come serve me. And this is a whole host of people, hundreds of thousands of people who are serving Pharaoh. And imagine you're that superpower um, Pharaoh, that superpower king, and you say, who are you talking about? But as Moses goes, he faithfully proclaims the message, but getting him there is a tough thing because he's like, well, God, I can't speak. Well, God, I can't do this. Well, God, I can't do this. And God, little by little by little, he says, you can't speak. I'm going to send Aaron with you. You can't do this. Here's what I'm going to do. By the way, M Moses, it's not your message. It's mine. By the way, Moses, it's not your work of redemption. It's mine. And time after time after time in these beginning pages of the book of Exodus, we are constantly reminded as the reader that it's God who hears the cry of his people, and it's God who's going to do something about it, and he calls Moses to join him in it. 
Moses was um, very much not uh, suited for the task. But in Exodus chapter 3, God reminds him of this great promise. I will surely be with you. I will surely be with you. Friends, what an incredible promise. When God has given his people something to do, as they are faithful to that, God is with them. God is with them. God is with you. God is with me in the work he has given us to do. And that's a great thing about lambs. You know, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. And you could almost think, but don't worry, I'll be with you. You may think that you're wholly un, um, unprepared or inadequate for the task, but you're not. And I'm sending you. So Jesus says, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. And then he gives some interesting travel uh, itinerary and in packing um, details here. He says, don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. Huh. I don't know about you. When was the last, well, have you been, raise your hand if you've been somewhere traveling in the last four weeks. Okay, a couple of you. How many of you are going somewhere in about four weeks? That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> um, when we pack, one of the things we do is we've got, a, we've got a suitcase for this and a suitcase for this and a suitcase for this. Uh, some of the travel I've been privileged to do throughout my life, I've had like a guitar in one hand, a backpack on the other, and a suitcase over here, and I'm going to this place or that place to, to engage in some sort of ministry or some sort of travel for, for fun with the family. So as I'm going, though, the more stuff I take, the more I have to look for when I'm leaving that place to go to the next place. Or the more stuff I have to be concerned with, like, all right, where's my guitar? D okay, it's over there. Where's my backpack? Okay, where it's, over th it's over there. Jesus is essentially saying, I want you to travel very, very light. Because here's the thing about stuff. Stuff takes work. <laughs> all right? It takes work. Now, I, I presume that they are already wearing tunics. You know? he, 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 he says, don't take uh, a traveling bag. So I assume that they're already wearing clothes. I'm assuming that they're already wearing sandals. But they're going out and they're walking. They're walking throughout the countryside, and they're going to go from town to town where Jesus eventually will come, and they're, they're going to be dependent, all right? They're essentially trusting that God will meet their needs, and oftentimes God meets their needs through people. You know, um, one of the things of Middle Eastern culture is hospitality. You know, you, you go to someone, you think about this with Abraham, for example. There, there's a bunch of men that come up to Abraham one day, and he says, come, sit down, can I get you some food? And it's this gesture of Middle Eastern hospitality where you're known in part by, in your character by what you do when a stranger comes. And so they're dependent upon strangers. And Jesus is making them dependent upon strangers, making them dependent upon how he will work in their midst. But they're going... And he says, don't greet anyone along the road. And this doesn't mean be rude, okay? We read that and we're like, well, why wouldn't you greet someone? You know, you're passing them. Um, this, this phrase is used in uh, 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 4, where um, someone comes to the prophet Elisha, and Elisha says to his servant, I want you to go, I want you to gather my staff, and I want you to go, and I want you to go to this place, this person's house, and here's what I want you to do, but on the way, don't stop and talk to anyone. And the reason he tells his servant that is because the mission is so important. And in fact, the mission in that case was there was a young man who died. And Elisha was going to walk back with the mother of the deceased child. But he's sending his servant ahead. 
And he says, I don't want you to get distracted by anything. And so it's not a call to be rude. It's a call to be focused. It's a call to be focused. Don't greet anyone along the road. In other words, stay on top of the work I've given you. Don't have all this chit-chat about things that don't matter. Be focused in everything you do. But whatever house you enter, he says, first say peace or shalom to this household. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. So you have this phrase, um, shalom alechem. Okay, on the top you have it in Hebrew. In the next line, in the middle line there, you have it in Arabic. And then you have it in English for those of us. And we say, thank you, it's in English. Um, shalom alechem is a, is a customary greeting in the Middle East. It means peace be with you. It, peace be upon you. Um, peace be to you. And, and if, here's the idea. If someone is open to the message of the kingdom, um, the disciples that Jesus is sending out are to receive the hospitality they provide as a springboard for ministry. And they know that they're receptive to this because they're what is termed a people of peace or a person of peace. Someone who, when they hear this message, because these disciples are focused and sharing about the kingdom of God, if the person says, I don't want to hear anything about it, just be quiet. They're not a person of peace. But if they're willing to listen to more, they're a person who is open and who is interested to hearing about the message of the kingdom. I actually got an email from a friend last night that I met a few years ago traveling um, out of the country, and he was talking about some of the work he is doing in his area, and he, he was saying, I met a person of peace the other day, someone who is interested. They, they, they didn't receive the message right away, but, but we had a good conversation, and we set up a time to have another conversation about the kingdom of God and about Jesus and who he is. So Jesus is saying, if a son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And he says in verse 7 and following, he says, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. So these disciples come to a town, they begin a conversation about the kingdom, about who Jesus is. If that's received, they're offered hospitality. Jesus says, receive that hospitality. It doesn't matter if they're in the biggest um, um, palace or if they're in the smallest hut or the smallest tent. You receive the hospitality they give. Stay there, eat what's given to you. Don't complain about it. Receive it with joy and um, and use that home as a place for ministry. Invest your life in the person and the people there for God's kingdom. Because see, here's the thing, is sometimes the people who are people of peace, who are open to that spiritual conversation, are the people whom we might least expect. Sometimes we go into it and we think, it's going to be this person, but it's not. You know, there's, there's maybe a coldness in this person to the things of God. But there's someone over here that we're like, man, I didn't, I didn't think that they were open to that. But through generously and liberally sharing the message of Jesus, man, I need to have another conversation. We need to have a follow-up. We need to invest in this relationship so I can help them learn what it means to follow God more clearly and passionately. And, and as you do that, don't... Don't complain about the provisions you have for a trip. Jesus' point is this. Uh, receive hospitality. Don't grumble. Proclaim the message of the kingdom. Allow your peace to rest on those houses. And the healing of the sick who are there 
is evidence of the kingdom of God at work in their midst. I, I like what one scholar says. He, he says, um, when, when you see these miracles of Jesus, they're like the audiovisual of God's redemptive work. All right? They're, they're like seeing God's redemption work in action. So you have these people who are gathered, they're sharing the message of the peace. But on the other hand, Jesus says, um, when you enter any town, verse 10, and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off the dust of your town that clings to our feet. He says, know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom, which is a great place of wickedness in the Hebrew Bible, than for that town. In other words... Um, wiping of the feet. Here's a cast of a foot. You know, people would walk everywhere they went. Maybe they'd ride a horse or a donkey or something like that, but most of the time they'd walk everywhere they went. They had dusty feet. And um, the picture that's going on here is to um, keep moving if you're not welcomed. But as you're leaving, uh, if someone has chosen to reject the message, you move on. Um, and you were to shake the dust from your feet as a repudiation of the village's rejection of them. And, and it's essentially this. It's a way of warning the city. You've heard the message. You've chosen not to listen to the message. And so I'm not just going to leave. I'm going to leave and leave all the dust from your town. It's now off my feet because I've done my responsibility. Because remember, it's God's harvest and, and it's God's work. And some people will choose to reject it. Some people will choose to reject it, but they do so to their own dismay, to their own peril, because, um, be, because judgment is a reality for people who reject Jesus. Um, in 10 verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Jesus indicates that a rejection of the disciple and his message is really a rejection of Jesus and of the Father who sent Jesus. As one scholar puts it, he says this, he says, to reject the message of the kingdom is to face the judgment of rejection by the God who offers that kingdom. So what do we do maybe when we share the message of the kingdom with someone and there's a great coldness there, there's a rejection there? Well, the first thing we do is this. Um, We pray. We pray. And and I love the Apostle Paul's model for this. In Romans chapter 11, or maybe it's chapter 10, he prays for his Jewish brothers and sisters that they might have a heart softened to the things of Jesus the Messiah. He prays for them, for their salvation, for their understanding, and for God to do a work in their heart that, frankly, the Apostle Paul, with all of his wisdom and all of his skill and all of his training, that he could not do. You pray. You pray. The second thing you do is you keep sharing the message of Jesus. You keep moving on. You you don't have to pound it into their forehead or anything like that. You be the best example and model of living the way of Jesus possible in front of them but you continue to go and you share the message of Jesus other places, all right? It it may be that that person's not going to listen to you, but maybe someone will come along a year, two, three, four years later who will have success for the kingdom there. You and I then, we just go and we keep sharing the message of Jesus. We stay on task for what God has given us to do. 
we come to the end of this, um, the end of this passage. And in, we have all those. I didn't really talk about them too much. But verses 13 through um, 15 talk about these towns. And Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are all towns in the realm of Jesus' life, all right? These are towns that he likely visited. They're up in the northern part of the Galilee. And they are towns that saw amazing miracles. But they are towns who saw these amazing acts of God and didn't believe. They, they, they saw it and didn't believe. What do we do with that? We pray and we trust them to God. You know, is essentially what Jesus is saying. And he actually call, calls down, woe to you. I, I mean, you've seen all these amazing acts of God. And he says... If other places like Sidon and Tyre, which are places a little bit more to the north in modern-day Lebanon, if places like that had seen what I had done, Jesus says, they would have repented and sat in sackcloth and ashes long ago. And he, what he's doing is he's, he's displaying the hardness of heart that these people have towards the things of God because they may be religious, but they're not spiritual. They may be religious, but they're not spiritual. It's possible to go through the motions of religion and not really have a relationship with Jesus. And that's what Jesus is calling his hearers to, to engage in the kingdom of God, to repent of their sin, to trust Jesus and begin this relationship with him by faith. And Jesus comes at the, at the end of this, and I, I didn't read this in our scripture reading, but in verse 17, all these 70 people come back and they return with joy and they say, hey, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. But Jesus doesn't say, great, they submitted. He says, I watched Satan fall like light from heaven, like a lightning flash. He says, look, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, nothing will ever harm you. What he means by that is nothing will ever harm you that, that is outside of my perfect will for your life. You know, because he's talking to disciples, you know, amongst his 12 disciples, most of them are going to end up being killed for their faith. Nothing will ever harm you? Well, eternally, nothing will ever harm them. But nothing's ever going to harm them that's outside the, the will and the goodness of God the Father, outside of God's plan. But he says this in verse 20, he says, however, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. In other words, don't rejoice in the authority I've given you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, for the disciple, what matters more than having power or having authority is knowing that you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. In John's gospel, Jesus says this in chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a relationship something that God wants to deepen in each one of us every single day as we follow him. And you may be here and um, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have been very religious but never had an actual encounter with the living God. The gospel is simply this. We believe that Jesus died for our sins we believe that there's no way to get to heaven, to, to live eternally with God, to be saved from our sins, except through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Easter or Resurrection Sunday and the Feast of First Fruits is such an important thing, because as the Apostle Paul writes later in the New Testament, without the resurrection, we're people who have no hope. We're people who have no hope. But I remind you, it's, it's God's authority. 
When God sends people, disciples, to go, he sends them and he appoints them, calling them to pray and calling them to trust his goodness and his power. God's harvest is just that. It's God's harvest. What workers are called to do is to be faithful and to invest themselves in sharing the message and engaging people with the good news of the kingdom. But it's God's harvest. Um, God's way for ministry is a way of dependence. I, I, for, I for one, can be an independent person sometimes and think, oh, I'll just fix this myself. Oh, I can just do this myself. And, and with some things, I find that I spend more time trying to fix it than if I had just gone and I had said, I need some help, please. God's design for a disciple is for them to be dependent. Dependent upon a good shepherd whose teaching is perfect for them and is perfect for what they need that day. Whose power is sufficient in their weakness. God's God's provisions for ministry are, are to find people of peace, keep sharing the message with other people, keep moving on. If people are unwelcome to the gospel, continue to spread the message. But always remember that God's message is God's message. We're never called to change the message. And if they reject the message of God, really they reject God. They don't reject us. And one of the great things about that and knowing that truth is we go, all I'm called to do is be faithful. That's it. Faithful to sharing the message accurately. Faithful to living with God in relationship. That's all I'm called to do. The rest is the Spirit of God working in the lives of people for his glory. So uh, we are going to transition to communion in just a minute here. I want to invite our worship team to come forward. Um, And as we do that, here's how I want to encourage you and challenge you for this next week. Um, The first way is this. Are you a disciple? Are, Are you a person who has a relationship with Jesus? If you are, God has given you the authority and the power you need through the working of his spirit to be his witnesses to the world. He has. He's given you exactly what you need. So my first challenge is this. Go and share the message of Jesus. Do so in a way where where you demonstrate and you explain and you engage people with what God is doing in your life today. I don't know what your your circles of of influence are. Sometimes we think, oh, well, do I have to go somewhere else to that? Well, sometimes God will call you to that. Sometimes God will say, hey, I want you to go over to this country, or I want you to go over to this state, or I want you to change jobs to go do this. That happens. But for many of us, God has already given us a circle of relationships, family, work, school, sports teams, friends, He's given you already circles of relationships where you have people in those relationships who do not know Jesus. Begin there. Begin there and ask God, God, where else would you have me go to share the message? That's your first encouragement. Um, the, The second one is this. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send people to work in his harvest. And be ready to say, God, send me. Because that's what he's going to do. 
but it's going to be God's work. It's going to be God's harvest. It's going to be God's message. And it's going to be God's provision for you and for me in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we look out into a world and we see great brokenness and we see great need of you. And God, I pray this morning as you taught these 70 disciples to pray, God, would you send out laborers to work in your harvest to faithfully share the message of Jesus with the people that are around them. And God, God for some it may be um, having an openness to being sent somewhere. Maybe that somewhere is overseas. Maybe that somewhere is a change of location within here. God, may we never become so tied to the things of this world that we would rather do and engage in the things of this world and not be about the mission you have given us. But God, even as we pray, send out laborers into the harvest. We pray, God, here we are. Send us. God, send us in your power. Send us in your authority. Send us to faithfully proclaim your message in the week that we have before us. God, I, I, I recognize that many of us here live very self-dependent lives. Teach us what it means to trust you and you alone for the power we need to faithfully share this message. We bless you, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of salvation that we have experienced through Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. And even now as we transition and we celebrate communion, God, we thank you for your body broken and your blood poured out. These amazing symbols, these amazing pictures of what Christ has done for us by dying on the cross and rising from the grave to pay and to atone once and for all for our sin, making us right with you. We bless you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616 772-4377.